Well, good evening, everybody. It's another conversation with Agility by Nature, and I'm hosting today, as usual, Ian Gill. The podcast is where we bring great IT leaders and business leaders and IT professionals, get cozy with them about how they create value in the digital world. We've had a lot of coaches lately, so it's time to change things and get a new perspective. And today's guest is all about startups, and it's all about digital and I think we have a lot of fun because it's all about product too. And I'm really looking forward to it. Today's guest is Paul Jackson from Level. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. No, very, very pleased. I mean, we've tried to schedule this a few times, but you're so busy. <laughs> you're one of the busiest guests. All the guests are busy. My you and me both. You and me both. <laughs> so I, I, I did the snoop through LinkedIn. And, um, you know, people can't see you in Radio Land, but you're a very youthful looking uh, man. But... 21, 22 years of non-stop uh, lead user experience in Architect. Uh, you've been at AQ, KQA. You were head of product management, Digital Times and Sunday Times, director of product at uh, Newman. You've been um, Castle Digital Partners, CPTO at StructureFlow, chief product and technology officer at VankPay, partner pivot venture services, chief product and technology officer at Level. It, there's a lot it's quite interesting how you've gone from sort of media and then you've got this distinctly financial fintechy feel coming through um but you are a real digital man aren't you? that that seems to be where you've been for a long time yeah i mean i i wouldn't say my career was really planned that way i think um it was a very different business when i started it at the end of the 90s before before dot bomb um and although i've kind of been in and out of various angles of it. I think it was one of the better choices I made uh, career-wise, and I've just hung in there. And it, it's now obviously become uh, the you know the tech beast that it is today. But it, it was not always the case, and I definitely cite various turning points, such as the introduction of the iPhone, that yeah. took the business from being oh you build websites, do you, to suddenly big tech being uh, this thing that is all around us. And it's easy to forget that, uh, you know, in the early days of the web, it was little more than just being able to move boxes and maybe a little bit of color and text around on a website. And that was, that was the extent of what you could do to ubiquitous digital products being on almost every interface and interfaces we couldn't even conceive of back then just being all around us. And, you know, one thing I often reflect on that I think has been overlooked the fact that you and I are speaking on a video call that just sort of happened it was never planned and obviously you and I will remember when it was the Star Trek future that we all thought was going to happen and and never did when we were young that's now just you know a daily occurrence for pretty much everyone since the pandemic but um, again these little technological leaps just crept out didn't they over the last decade or so and became part of our life without too much fanfare oh you, you, you're absolutely right i mean you, there was a time when everything took effort and ship yeah. and now yeah. everything assuming you've got the the money to do it and it's not assume everybody is digitally enhanced but pretty much everything is now personal available yeah. as and when you want it and it's interesting you mentioned the iphone that really i think even when we were coding in netscape and all that it still felt like a corporate type thing and then yeah. boom, it suddenly became a very in-your-pocket personal part of you. That yeah. interaction changed. A big, a big, a large piece of change happened at that point, I think. 
I, I agree. And I, I'm a big believer in that old adage that technology always changes less in the short term and more in the long term than, than we realize. Uh, obviously, the moment you can't possibly fully comprehend the, the long term consequences, it just feels like a moment in time. But then you look back and realize just what, you know, where those real game changing moments were. The other one, of course, was the introduction or the rollout of broadband, which I think uh, occurred around 2006. And I remember seeing a graph of internet and digital usage and somebody showed it to me and all it did was plot the years. And there was a sudden spike around 2005, 2006. And somebody, you know, the question was what happened then that changed everything and nobody could get it. And the, and the answer was that it was when broadband was fully deployed uh, on a large scale across Europe and the United States, all of a sudden, going online became something that people did habitually rather than go down a web cafe. Do you remember those? Or, you know, just being able to use it on one computer at work. Uh, again, not a moment that is inked in history, but hugely yeah. significant in terms of uh, the uptake of digital. The other thing, of course, is Amazon Web Services, which changed everything. And I would certainly acknowledge or I certainly believe is as significant as as the iPhone in terms of tech and startup culture. Yeah. But again, you have to be a bit of an industry wonk to really <laughs> understand the influence that it has. But without AWS and the yeah. um, massive reduction in server costs and storage space that it introduced, um, we, we certainly level wouldn't be here today. And I think most startups would be in a similar position. I, I was just pondering on that because I, I mean I remember um, just dial-up modems. I think it was yeah. tongue bun. You could do it for free, and that yeah, was yeah. it was a painful experience. Yeah, about it now. But uh, the the point about barriers to entry. Um, I mean, startups. Is it all excitement and just become a lot more excitement because you've got access to all this compute power now, or is it just as stressful as it ever was? Uh, no, I, I would say it's a lot. It's a lot more exciting uh, yeah. because you can develop products and uh, deliver real value-adding um, features and services in a matter of months in a way that used to take years and require masses amounts of capital. And so, the amount or the speed, the velocity, um, is just. 20 times what it was even a few years ago and the you know the term barriers to entry that you used is absolutely right the barriers to entry have just collapsed across the piece and now uh you know pretty much anyone give or take uh, could probably you know deliver some sort of version of their app or website or product uh, with very very little um, capital and not too many resources and that's very empowering now whether or not they're successful in the long term uh, and whether or not they compete is is a very different matter but your ability to realize an idea yeah is much more you know kind of accessible uh, than it that it was even a few years ago and as a product owner um you know it's great to see technology giving you these tools and the availability but as a product owner is it just shortened the, the, the feedback loop massively you can crack up an idea quite quickly and then you could actually out and about in market and see people out respond to it or not respond to it and it gives, does it give you a better chance to to, to survive as a startup it's a, it's a phenomenally risky business isn't it startup it needs money even small amount yes i think it, it's removed the short-term challenges almost to nil in the sense that if you have an idea for a product you can probably realize it but it's exacerbated the long-term challenges because it's made 
every single possible idea and every single market you know a hundred times more competitive because there's just so many more players in it and then you get into the more uh challenging and gnarly aspects which is the commercial model how are you making money and then how well capitalized are you uh because they are those players ultimately are the ones that will probably survive so as a product person we you know my generation of product managers was reared on this slightly romantic notion that if you build this if you build a great product people will come to it and and, and you'll be a success and that you know like anyone who has spent some time in the industry it's not quite as simple and straightforward as that and as much as we'd love to believe that if you build a great product then the democratic market will choose the best product um there are there are some realities um that are much more difficult these days which is who's paying similar to the pro- problem the music industry has it's probably easier now to you know publish and distribute your music than it ever has been um pretty much anybody could do that because it's completely democratized but will they be paid for it or be able to earn a living from it exactly. almost definitely not and i would i would class the startup industry has moved into a similar category, whereas your ability to distribute your product idea is now much more accessible. Your ability to actually create a revenue generating business off the back of it is now has, has, hasn't exactly collapsed, but has become the more challenging part. And I've always maintained that building the product isn't really the hard bit. Selling the product, monetizing the product is the hard bit because thanks to all of the, you know, very, very well-known brands and names, uh, particularly the Facebooks and the Googles of this world. We've grown, you know, Snapchat, LinkedIn, you name it. We've all become reared on the idea of free software. And therefore, you know, it's now very hard to build a business model around software because people expect music for free, videos for free, services for free, content for free. Uh, and unfortunately, that's now started to percolate into the business uh, sector, which has become challenging for me as a predominantly B2B product manager, because now businesses are, are less inclined to pay for software because there are people giving software away to businesses. And, you know, that that's that's very challenging because those sectors who expect to pay for software are becoming you know harder and harder to find. And obviously, if you are in, in, in the business of free software, then monetizing at scale is the only option you've got. So it, then it becomes all about growth and it becomes a winner takes all yeah. um, kind of arms race. That's, it's, it's interesting you should say that because I don't really consider the B2B market, you're quite right, the consumer market is it's free. Mm. Actually, it's not free. That. So I think you made some really good points about B2B. Uh, coming back to though, um, it's free. It's not really free, is it? So the, no, nothing's for free, of course, <laughs> in real life. If you if you have to ask what the product is, well, the answer is probably it's you. Um, exactly. Some people are making a lot of money, and actually, it's becoming quite controversial. And we talk about mm. Facebook, that once was a startup uh, and has had its competitors seen them off, and is now a very large thing indeed. And it's getting a lot of attention and scrutiny about its yeah. role democracy. Uh, the way it makes money, the way it's able to manipulate behaviour. Um, the film on uh, Netflix was it the social dilemma. Uh, it, yeah, that's that's a bit of a concern. And I think do you do you perceive that people are starting to react 
to that as much as many people are ignoring it they don't care do you think people start saying hmm do we need to look at this a bit more carefully now is this right i think regulation is definitely going to become a huge strategic issue for all of big tech um i don't if we go back to the to the initial point i think we're discussing i don't in my slightly skeptical worldview think that any of it is going to um, incline people to pay for services that they've expected to get for free uh, yeah, yeah i don't think anyone will pay for facebook consumers obviously yeah. advertisers will yeah. uh, anymore they're going to pay for youtube or google search i mean youtube yeah. is obviously as, as big as anything out there and is a part of everyone's life but they've found it very difficult to monetize because when you start a as in they try to introduce a paid service but it hasn't got off the ground and they are still I believe loss making but I could be wrong but primarily funded through advertising simply because when you introduce a service with the expectation that it's free it's very very hard to uh, move people to paying for it uh, and therefore you just become a scale play and I worry about that um, starting to infiltrate all sectors obviously because then it just makes it much harder for um most startups to build a business that's revenue generating over the long term if that's the expectation so my career choice if you could call it that to focus mainly on b2b which i think is the big opportunity certainly in europe much more yeah. so than in the us yeah. is that businesses expect to pay for their software for yeah. the pure for the basic reason one that they're you know better funded and secondly they expect things like security. They expect things like support. And that's what they pay for. And obviously, that's a preconception that uh, we, we are starting to see science is, is beginning to change in the market because people are giving software for, to free for, for free to businesses. Yeah. Uh, um, I think one of the things that was interesting about your current company is they have an ethical charter. But before we talk about the ethical charter, let's switch to say, actually, give a chance for you to say what level is all about. So people in radio land and podcast land say, oh, what is this level? Because it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely little thing that you've, you've decided to go for. Sure. Level is a financial health platform for employers. Uh, we are, uh, we believe, the uh, most digital um financial health service for any large organization. Uh, we partner uh, with large employers to um, enable them to deploy a, a number of different financial health services to their employees, all of which we believe have a material impact on uh, financial health, be it helping to reduce debt, uh, improve budgeting, or start saving. Uh, we capitalize very much on a number of innovations in the fintech space, particularly in the UK, uh, open banking, uh, revolutions around payments, all of which we uh, package up and you know offer to employers as a single holistic, holistic service. I, and, and, and you know, I'm a bit, I'm not completely financially illiterate, but I'm not the most disciplined saver slash uh, looking after money, watching my budgets. But also, um, if someone said to me, "I've got a thousand pounds," all I do is say, "I have no idea what you <laughs> actually." this sounds good and i think is this where employers need to bring more valuable uh value add to their own employment army as well to attract great people yeah absolutely it hopefully um adds value in a number of ways to the organization so it is obviously an extension of a growing well-being agenda that has existed in organizations for a number of years it started with physical health with 
you know, cycle to work and gym memberships, then extended into mental health, which is still very much the big preoccupation of most yep. large employers uh, and offering services that support uh, you know, employees' mental health it is very current. Um, but what has become clear is that financial stress is a key component of mental health concerns and stress, but is also a well-being uh, sector in and of itself. Uh, and so the, really the, the leading edge of well-being considerations is financial health as a component of a well-being strategy. Uh, and what's different about financial health is that thanks to open banking uh, and various other fintech uh, revolutions, there is now much more of a digital service offering that can be introduced. We can now analyze transaction history and make very, very informed recommendations around how you could deploy your income. We can now offer savings accounts that take seconds to sign up through your mobile phone, where it used to take months or at least a lot of bureaucratic application offline. Uh, We now have uh, the opportunity for employees to take uh, small advances on their earned income ahead of payday. So we're breaking down that 12-month cycle of payday to make it more flexible around individuals' needs. Um, and all of those services are just going to um, accelerate and become smarter over time. And we can now deliver all of those directly to uh, people's, in, you know, people's phones. So it's something that's accessible 24-7. And if you look at the counterfactual, the alternative, it's been a lot of bureaucratic processes, a lot of offline, a lot of form filling in. And I think a lot of the reason why most people would say that they're not particularly financially astute is simply because the process of becoming financially astute is very off-putting and people have better things that they want to do so you know I'm a big believer that if you can use technology to reduce um, bureaucracy to reduce process people will engage with services in a way that they never did before because those as you said barriers to entry um, can be removed with digital. I totally agree with you I mean I did open uh, just to see how it worked actually I opened up a a bank account in one of the new players on the block it could have been Starling could be Monday it was Monza on this occasion. My goodness, yeah. gracious, how easy was it? I did it on yeah. the train. I was on the train and I did, it. Uh, did the, sent the photo and sent all the words and what have you. And I had an account and a credit limit quite quickly. Yeah. I was yeah. quite sure, you know, know your customer and all that sort of development. Because open banking is really, I, I don't think any of us quite understood how it would open up markets the way it has. But I think this is, there's a level of trust here as well, isn't there? There is, and we see this at level, and I, I don't want to overgeneralize, but there is, a, there is a generation gap between the generation that just trust digital and are happy to connect their bank, bank account in exchange for digital services and those that are very uncomfortable with it uh, and don't engage for that reason. And I think over time that will change as people become, obviously it reaches a tipping point when you can see that most people are using these services and there hasn't been a cybersecurity disaster so people will become more comfortable but it is uh, to someone like my dad for instance it's absolutely mind-blowing that you would connect your personal bank account to an app that you only just downloaded on your phone and share those details but that's just part of what you know technology the the habitual or behavioral change that technology can introduce i mean you you we probably remember the the early days of of payments on the internet on the internet and that took probably 10 years for it to become a Wow. a trusted environment and PayPal and huge amounts of uh, structural developments had to be put in place to make payments safe via credit card. Or, and now, of course, we don't even think about it. We just have one click payment and it's not even a consideration. But that's, I would say, 10 to 15 years of, 
of slow change to make it something that everybody's comfortable with. Uh, absolutely. In fact, I had two things happen to me very recently. That someone sent me a check, like a real written down check. Yes. <laughs> he gave me some cash, a five pound yeah. note. My son actually gave me a five pound note. And I thought, what am I going to do with this note? Nobody's taking notes because I've been using quite But the check, what am I going to do with it? But actually, I just opened up the app, I scanned it, it's paid in, job done. We go. I thought, yeah. well, that's good. That's good. And isn't that, that's great digital, isn't it? Taking out the cost and the pain of the process, mm. connecting me very quickly to the thing I want to do in a very, hardly any resistance. and makes me think good things about the bank on this occasion, which I don't often think good things about banks, but on this occasion, I thought, that's a good thing that's happened. I like this. Give me more of that. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I, I actually think, you know, one of the exciting parts about working in fintech in the UK is that we are at the leading edge to, of this, thanks to a number of smart decisions that they made after the last financial crisis before this one, where effectively they forced the banks to uh, comply with what, what Europeans call PSD2 and what we now call open banking yeah. and really pushed forward that agenda in a way that is probably impossible in the United States and certainly a lot less uh, slick and comprehensive in other countries, which means that we now have a complete banking system that has open APIs to their data. So you can build a whole startup ecosystem on top of that. Uh, it's not just about an individual startup trying to move massive structural changes the structural changes have been put in place so you know the, the private sectors can come in and, and build the solutions and it you know who knows who it will be but it's the the frequency and the amount of startups trying to build on these uh, innovations that will create real value over time so can we move then to your ethical charter because i just thought sure. well we, we we could do a bit more ethics, I think, perhaps in a digital world, because obviously there's some things that are not very ethical. Is, is, is this something that's unique to Level, or is this a movement in the product management world, do you believe? Um, I would definitely say it's a movement. It's certainly not anything that I would say Level is pioneering. Uh, we are actually just falling in line with what a lot of other companies, particularly financial companies, are doing, um, and is absolutely part of... I suppose the new economy, which is all, all, all very much around what is financially called ESG, um, which is ethical investing and uh, is a huge investment sector where allegedly there is more capital looking to find a home than there are companies ready to take it, which obviously drives, drives change in the market. Um, we actually developed an ethical charter before we had built a product or before we had even really established ourselves as a company so it was a definitely a strategic decision in, in the early days uh, we hired a, a consultant who used to or was working for the bill and melinda gates foundation at the time so very much involved in, in in kind of ethical finance and he did a great job listening to our mission uh, researching the market and then identifying and articulating what our uh, charter should be what our statement of purpose and what our individual ethical principles were we publish them on our website and we do adhere to them. And it is really fundamental to our sales process these days, as, as important as the product itself. And, and are we going to see more companies adopting it? And will it get to the point that if you haven't got an ethical charter, that can be checked to see? If I think so. Or you're not going to see I, funds coming in or, or something like that? I, I think it um, impacts two areas of the business. I think it is um, 
critical for sales, particularly if you are selling into the well-being space or the HR function, uh, because ethics it, it is a, as important as the product and service. Why you do something is as important as what you do. And in fact, we have been in sales meetings with chief people officers where why do you do this was the first question they asked before the what, before the how, before the product, before the how much, why do you do this? And that, that caught us a little off guard in the early days, which is one of the reasons why we invested in the ethical charter. And the other part is recruitment. Um, it is increasingly something that, uh, shall we say, the younger folk in tech um, are really prioritizing in the choices that they make. They want to work for a company with purpose. Um, and obviously, the ethical charter is a great statement to that. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that's a modern thing, though? Because I hear a lot about millennials and generations as well, have you? But uh, I talk to a lot of coaches who might be a little bit more mature, shall we say. And purpose is important. They look to the purpose yeah. in the business that they, they lead to. Is it just that it's becoming more explicit and it's got to be driven up more than perhaps it was in the past? Uh, I think so. I think purpose is important. I think it is um, a a must-have, really, for um, this generation of startups and new companies. But I think it's also, like everything, a response to the very real um, fallout of how a lot of these tech companies have proved to be operating. Um, you mentioned, uh, I think, in our earlier discussion, um, you know, the... the uh, concerns that have been raised about exactly what um, the Facebooks and social media companies are doing to influence our behavior. And I think, you know, the investigations and inquiries that Zuckerberg uh, has, you know, amongst many others have been subject to has made us realize, actually, you know, they aren't nearly as ethical as they've been made. They've been made out. And uh, there's a lot Well, ladies and gentlemen, you may have noticed there's a slight jump in the conversation. We've had gremlins in the internet where we've lost connection a couple of times, actually. Uh, So on this occasion, we're going to pick it up roughly in a new place. So thanks for coming back, Paul. I've let Darcy the dog out, so we're going to have a little bit more peace and quiet. Um, We've talked about ethics and talked about the chart, and I think it's fantastic. I hadn't really perceived this movement coming around. Can we get a bit more personal now, down and dirty, with the actual interaction mm. uh, and product managers, the design, the interaction? That's mm. where just knowing the technology is one thing, but knowing how people are interacting with software is really mm. key. And let's talk about nudging and, and the behavioural side as well. And I know this is an area that you've become very, very keen and very hot on. So perhaps you yeah. can talk to us about what that means. Sure. Um, I can certainly confirm that it is it is a very current topic. It's it's a hot space and there's a huge amount of interest. And for what it's worth, the main media interest in level uh, and our, our major PR breakthroughs are very much around the angle of behavioral economics uh, and how it's being deployed within digital product. That's a that's an area that's generating a lot of interest. There is a a very well-known unit, uh, sometimes known as the nudge unit, but officially called the behavioral insights team that used to be part of government uh, and is now a independent um, agency that is one of the, the, the leading lights in the application of behavioral economics um, and 
we benefit from a partnership with them. They are working with us to research the introduction of our savings feature uh, in, in the next few weeks. And they bring a huge amount of, um, uh, I suppose, academic insight to mm. how behavioral economics can work within the digital product space. But it's also value exchange because we can obviously bring the knowledge of interaction design and work together as to the best way uh, to deploy uh, behavioral science into, into digital product. What nudging means is effectively uh, the use of small cues or prompts that are very clear and very benign. Um, then they're light patterns, not dark patterns, that over time are designed to try and encourage positive behavioral change. Uh, they need not be digital. In fact, the most famous nudge ever uh, it still is probably the decision uh, to make pensions opt out rather than opt in. Uh, again, a very benign change, but it created obviously a huge cultural shift because all of a sudden people had to make the effort to opt out of pensions rather than opt in and take up and involvement in pensions went, went up massively. You may have noticed that they are now doing something similar for organ donation. So you now have to opt out of organ donation Right, you are officially opted in. Now that's a little bit more edgy, and I think there's a fair amount of uh, nuance and qualifiers to that. But if you, I certainly hear the um, information, sorry, the adverts on the radio quite a lot. They are now making obviously organ donation is underfunded, shall we say? And over time, uh, your organs will be donated by default unless you opt out. That's a nudge. That's a big nudge, and so look out for that. Yeah. And so uh, what we do in our product is obviously look at uh, similar, uh, I suppose, interaction techniques that can help people uh, save more, budget better, manage their finances better. And that can be the use of SMS alerts to warn you when you have a forthcoming that or an up and sorry, say again. That would be the trigger. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's there's any number of ways that you can nudge, but most of the research indicates that targeted SMS is one of the most effective because it obviously is very, very personalized. The read rate of an SMS is enormous when compared to an email. It's something like 94%. So if you get an SMS, you know, in the main, you will read it, which is not the case with it, with emails and even now with LinkedIn messages because we're all getting spammed to hell. We're getting less spammed via SMS. So uh, the, the, the read rate is much higher. And so a good example of a level nudge is that if you have a, a forthcoming annual or quarterly bill, which of course are all the ways the bills that we forget, and all of a sudden a £300 bill drops in and blows up our finances for the month, We'll, we'll send you an alert a month in advance and then a week in advance to say, just remember, you've got your you know, car tax or your annual insurance bill coming out so that you can plan around it. Uh, we can also uh, make recommendations as to how you may be able to save money based on potentially your utility provider or your insurance provider. And over time, that can get smarter and hopefully more useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it, and I did take some notes about it, trigger, action, reward, investment of time. Is this all part of the nudge psychology, the nudge methodology, if I dare use that word? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll try and give you the, the, the short answer, but um, even the short answer is quite long. But what the, the history of um, behavioral science in product uh, starts with a guy called BJ Fogg, mm. who um, is a Stanford professor and founded 
uh, a um, faculty within Stanford that looked at um, human computer interaction. And he spent 20 years uh, observing what affects behavioral change in individuals and in humans via technology. And he came to the, the conclusion that, um, you know, behavior was actually the product of a number of factors all coming together at the same time. It was motivation, action and trigger. And all three um, components had to be present to over time create a, a, a change in behavior. And what his students then did, this is part of the of the story of, of um, you know, the social dilemma. His students, all of whom went on to become founders or leading lights in Facebook and Instagram and uh, okay. um, Google and YouTube, they then took that thinking and applied it at massive scale uh, around a business model that was all, a, all, all about usage. So they used those psychological principles to create what became known as habit loops to keep you coming back into Facebook, in, into Instagram, into these social media tools. And we, we know that because we've all been there when those notifications pop up and it says somebody just liked your photo or someone just commented on your post. And yeah. it's deliberately obtuse because it doesn't say who and it doesn't say what they said. And therefore, what do you have to do to find out more? You have to go into the app and read it. And those loops are deliberately designed to keep you coming back because how do they make money? They make money through your eyeballs in the app yeah. and so you know the history of what has now become known as a dark pattern within uh, behavioral science and behavioral principles is use of nudges to keep you coming back uh, for commercial reasons rather than for your own uh, beneficial reasons and so that uh, habit loop that you just just described is part of uh, one of B.J. Fogg's students, a guy called Nir Eyal, who wrote a book that broke down how social media companies had deliberately um, co-opted B.J. Fogg's theory, which was completely benign. It was just a, kind of an abstract theory and um, applied it to create um, addictive uh, behaviors or addictive um, hooks. Uh, his book is called Hooked um, into social media products to basically keep you addicted to your phone which as we know is a, is a big cultural problem and so and that sort of brings us back together so what you're really saying is you now as a product manager have got expertise in the knowledge and the tools to maneuver behavior also create behavior or at least the understandings of uh, what the components of behavioral change are and of course a very powerful set of tools in an object or a device that we have on us all of the time and has the capability to message you at any point and likely draw your attention and draw you in. So very powerful tools, as well as the knowledge of um, what is likely to create your attention and over time create habitual change. And so you and other like-minded product managers have taken the view of to make sure I'm a good guy, <laughs> I'm going to use those yeah. tools for good. Yes, and exactly. Nudge, nudging for good is yeah, absolutely uh, the motto. No, so yeah, that's a good point. So a negative nudge or a dark pattern of nudging, i.e. using nudges to um, further your own company ends at the expense of your users is called sludge. Mm -hmm. So a sludge is deliberately making uh, it hard for users to do things that you don't want them to do, such yeah. as unsubscribe such as 
complain, such as find information uh, that you don't want them to find and they're deliberately buried. So if, we, if you've ever struggled to find out how to unsubscribe from a service and after 20 minutes discovered that you have to phone a number and then get, get caught in a retention call where somebody negotiates with you, that's a sludge because really you should be able to press a button and unsubscribe. Uh, funny enough, this morning I was trying to not unsubscribe but just see for a month a supply of something Oh my goodness gracious! There you go. Was, uh, the, the most ridiculous waste of ten. To, he even said, "Click here if you want to suspend." Yeah. And I clicked here and ended up in a whole labyrinth of here, there, and everywhere. But nothing that says I was quite cross actually. Classic sludge. And, and like everything, it's designed. Don't assume that it's just uh, been overlooked or bad. It's designed that way. Everything in digital product is designed in a certain way. And so if something's hard, that's as designed as, as if something's easy. Because we know from the good products we use that things can be made easy if there's a commercial game to doing it. How quickly is, how easy is it to check out on Amazon? It's one click. And that's because they, want, they don't want to give you any barrier or put in place any barriers yeah. to you buying. But if they do want to put barriers in place, then, you know, they, they will do so. And that, again, is, is uh, premeditated. Well, Paul, thank you so much. You've been lifting, I feel like you've lifted the skirts on a whole new world of what's going on in our product, modern product development. Obviously, we're living in difficult time, pandemic, and we and I are using Zoom today. I don't think Zoom's been a problem, but maybe internet has been a bit of a problem with a few interruptions. But uh, at times of difficulty, in, um, startup activity can get quite active, very busy when the economy's mm-hmm. bubbled. What needs to happen to really get the UK startup market really fizzing? What does it need now, do you think? Because we've got entrepreneurs like yourself and your company, ethical people trying to do great things in a good way. What do we need to do more to get more of that action going in the United Kingdom? Well, first, I'd, I, you know, I'd first like to state that I think the UK is one of the best places to start a startup. I think we have a fantastic startup ecosystem. And one of the subjects we probably won't get time to get into is that because we have so much uh, incredible nearshore and offshore development talent, it's actually a lot quicker and cheaper to do a startup than it probably is in, in the United States because, you know, we've got the benefits of, you know, fantastic engineers in Europe and on the corner of Europe um, to, to work with. And that's how level and also the, the two previous startups I've worked with have all built their products. So it's a great, it's a great place to do a startup. Uh, we do have an actually an excellent angel investment and v, an increasingly VC investment uh, ecosystem. So if, I do believe that if you have a good idea and great capability, it's not hard to find capital uh, to invest in your idea. And there are a lot of angels that are keen to deploy their cash in, into the new ecosystem. And increasingly, it's, their problem is that they just don't know where to find those startups. It's not that there's a lack of appetite to invest because there most definitely is. Um, I think it is um, about the, the challenge going back almost circular to where we started, Ian. The biggest challenge is the commercial uh, and monetization challenges of building a business that is sustainable over time by being rev- revenue generating. And uh, I think a, more attention needs to be paid to uh, the business model, uh, the sales model, uh, and the long-term viability, because I've seen so many great products just come and go because 
they they had unfortunately started with a preconception that if you build a great product, you can work out the revenue model and the monetization later. And that might have been the case 10, 15 years ago in America, probably more so than here. It's definitely not the case now. So you need to really think about, okay, it's not that hard to build a product, but it's very hard to get someone to pay for it. So what's my angle here? And it doesn't mean it's impossible, but do spend time thinking about that and build the product that you think people will pay for, not that you think is a great idea because uh, you know, there is no long-term business model in free, despite what it looks like. Uh, the uh, advantages that the Facebooks and the Googles had and the Uber, probably worst example of all, I mean, an unlimited war chest of cash meant that they could go into almost any market and virtually give away the product and, and ruin all of the competition uh, and then obviously become the incumbent. That's not, a, that's not a business model that's open to everyone. So think about how you'll make money uh, at the same time as you're thinking about what the product is. Yeah, I'm looking forward to asking a lot of entrepreneurs, because we're talking to a lot of people in Africa, Latin America, what have you, what they think about their growth in their country jurisdiction because i think everybody a smaller world means competition is getting closer and closer from the overseas uh and yeah we know that uh, that is definitely something that i think we'll see a lot more of i think there'll be a lot more coming from abroad not yep. just technical heft but also new players with brand new approaches that we haven't even thought of it's going to be very exciting a bit hairy. most definitely competition is a good thing ultimately uh, it can yeah. be problematic but that's what ultimately drives us all forward yeah. i think yeah, yeah. Uh, so I hope so. I hope that continues to be the case post-Brexit. Absolutely. <laughs> Me too. Paul, thank you so much for your thank time. You, patience with our technical glitches. I did say I'd finish on the air. I'm a minute over. I do apologise. But Paul, uh, so much good luck to you for Level. Thank you very much. It goes really well for you and the guys. We've worked with a little bit with you. Fantastic idea. Fantastic product. If people want to talk to you about product management or they want to talk to you about, actually, can we talk to you about Level? How can they get hold of you? You can email me directly at pjj at getlevel.co.uk. You can go to getlevel.co.uk and just drop us a message, uh, contact us. Uh, or I'm you know, very active on Twitter. I have my own handle. It's actually at Pivot Services. Or you can find me, Paul Jackson, Level Finan Financial Technology on LinkedIn. Please do reach out in any of those channels. I'll put all the links and uh, handles uh, at the bottom of the summary that I'll write of this, which hopefully I will summarise accurately. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Ian. Thank you for everybody who's been listening today. We appreciate you giving our time. Um, if you want to talk to me and talk about some of the subjects we've raised, uh, you can get me at ian.gill at Agility by Nature, or you can use the LinkedIn uh, messaging. Nobody really messaged me, so I'll spot you quite quickly. Uh, I think Paul and I might be going for a small Rioja now. I don't know about you, Paul, but uh, I'm feeling a little, after a successful podcast like this, I think the red wine is well in order. Definitely. I second that. Okay. Thank you so much. Cheers. All. Cheers.